The NFX podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating and review and by sharing with friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos by following us on Twitter at NFX and visiting NFX.com. And now, on to the show. Brett, thank you so much for joining us on the NFS podcast today. It's great to speak to you again. We were just down in Mexico a few weeks ago, so really good to have you today to join us. Thank you. Great to be on, Pete. I have learned a lot from you personally and a lot from this podcast, so it's great to be on. We'll talk a little bit about what we were doing down in Mexico Mm -hmm. in a little bit. Maybe just let's kind of set Mm -hmm. the background to give some introductions. So why don't we do some quick fire kind of numbers and talk about what New Story is. Before we do that, maybe just like what's the elevator pitch Mm -hmm. on New Story? Yeah, so our mission is to pioneer solutions to end global homelessness. And so we work with families that are living really in extreme poverty without adequate housing. And what we do is we come in and we look at a lot of the inefficiencies and the traditional kind of outdated models of why families don't have access to certain things like financing or affordable housing. And then we try to bring in innovations and better solutions to that market. And if you think about it, the market that we work with is unfortunately about 1.6 billion humans that don't have adequate housing. And wow, uh, that's a, billion. that number is supposed to potentially get over 3 billion in the 2030s. And so we see that as a impact oriented model, but from a founder standpoint, which you know, there's a lot of them listening, it's a massive underserved market that we think is has so many opportunities to bring in new innovations and you know web3 stuff and better ways to do design and architecture for the decade and so that's what we get to work on and i've been doing it for about six years now we work mostly in latin america started in haiti and that's what we get to work on so in terms of kind of numbers quick fire like how many homes mm-hmm. has new story built so far Yeah, by the end of this year, we should have well over 3,000, hopefully closer to 4,000. And all of those homes are actually in communities. So we design communities. So you could think of not only as the home as a product, but the whole community as a product. And how do you have different features in that community so that it provides a better lived environment for families and it enables them to increase their income, have better health health outcomes, things like this we'll talk more about. And so, yeah, that's what we get to work on. And the home per home cost uh, ranges anywhere from about 6000 to 10000 US dollars per house for a multi-generational home. Community is a product. Yeah, I love that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I know you're very thoughtful about how do you be put in this participatory design, about mm-hmm. how do you make sure this is not just a house, this is a community where people belong and, and, that, and have, that, have a sense yeah. of ownership. Yeah, you know, just to bring up a startup principle there, because we were one of the first nonprofits to go through Y Combinator back in 2015. And of course, you know, the mantra is, you know, make something people want. And when you think about the families that we work with, unfortunately, the status quo of the types of people that usually work with them is they don't really go and learn what the family or the customer in this example, what do they actually want? They just think, okay, this family is, you know, very low income, poor, we just need to help them. So let's 
let's just grid out a bunch of houses, not get their input, not get their feedback, not really have you know systems set up to A-B test and learn and create a better product. And so we just thought that was very outdated and wrong and not how a startup would go about approaching that. And so we love bringing in uh, the families and the residents that we get to work with, and they can help give us feedback on the home design, on the community design, how we do payments, how we do financing, like we're designing and improving our products based off of their feedback, which of course, to a lot of founders listening sounds like, of course, that's what you do. But unfortunately, in you know, kind of the nonprofit or the social sector, that doesn't happen. And I think that's one of the main reasons why uh, you get a lot of uh, bad outcomes, because you're not using some of these um, really important startup principles. Yeah, it's startup principles, but it's also Web3 principles, right? The sort of yeah. principle of so much of Web3 is built on the back of communities. That's right. And, you know, I think there's probably, we'll touch into it, but like how kind of online communities are learning from offline communities. But, mm-hmm. you know, you think of your organization as a tech company first that happens right. to be a nonprofit that happens to be kind of building homes. Yes. And, you know, you're kind of learning the best of these online principles, as well as mm-hmm. I'm sure importing some of these offline principles into the way you're thinking about online stuff. That's right. So maybe we'll go that more sort of like previous and later stuff now, but like kind of quick update on kind of an NFT sale you did recently. So <laughs> yeah. what were the numbers of that? And it stole up pretty quickly, I hear. Yeah, I mean, so I would say that New Story thinks of innovations really in two main buckets. I'd say the most important one, which is actually counter to a lot of most nonprofits, by far the most important innovation is just like the products and innovation that we can design for the families that we serve. Right. So that's one bucket. And we'll talk about how we're using Web3 for that. But then the other one is just a better way to do, you know, funding and to generate revenue. And so the NFT one was just a really quick example of how we learned from some of, I won't name certain collections, but we were watching very closely some of the other collections out there. And so we spun up our own collection in a very short period of time and sold out within a day. And they were selling for about two ETH a piece. And that alone will fund almost a whole community from that one day of just selling NFTs. And so we're now actually going into our next phase, which will be a new collection that we hope to release here before the end of the year in 2021. So it's just like understanding what's going on and what's an interesting use case for the partners, the donors that we want to work with. And I think there's a lot of people are listening. You know, all the great use cases for NFTs. I do think that having that be donations is a very transparent way you get up obviously something very cool that you can have in your wallet. We're also going to associate some other kind of benefits with the NFT, with brand partnerships that we get in the future. So we're very excited about it. We kind of dipped our toe in the water and there's a lot more come that we're working on. I so love that you're doing it because it's so many nonprofits are like so risk averse because they're like, they're trying to perhaps sort of like these owners or just not Mm -hmm. screw up. And there's a like, with every experimentation, there's a high degree of potential failure, which is fine, but that's the only way you learn. And it's like proved out, right? You've won fast company, most innovative companies in the world bunch of years running. Yeah. yeah. Four out of the last five years we've been in that. Okay. And so, and yeah, I think, you know, for founders listening, especially in the earlier stages, like what I've learned is so key is really pick what you have conviction on and just be shameless about that and be unashamed about how other people are going to think about it. So sometimes when new story, you know, we launch new things and I know that, you know, some of the general donors that are used to certain expectations or experiences with a traditional nonprofit, they may 
may roll their eyes at us or they may say, hey, you guys can't do that first. You got to let the other people do it first. It's going to be all these things. And if you try to listen to everybody, you're just going to get diluted. Your brand's going to get diluted. Your messaging is going to get diluted. And so what we've said is we're unashamed in how we think about using technology, calculated risk taking, innovation, how we pay people. And this doesn't have to be for you, but this is going to be for the type of you know investor donors that say, hey, I resonate with that because I would maybe run it the same way if I was running a nonprofit or I was an executive nonprofit. And so that's been key for us is to just have conviction and just speak to that market that believes in the same things that we do and not worry about other folks that disagree. So that's really important for us. So let's go there. Like, let's talk about the origin story. You know, tell me about the trip to the yeah. Haiti and when was that? And then you connected with your co-founders. Yeah. Tell us the origin story and how you got to got things going in the first place. Yeah. So I uh, graduated college in 2012 and got really interested in startups kind of around my senior year in college. And I just started kind of learning on my own, listening to reading books, podcasts. I mean, at that time, there wasn't as many resources out there as there are now, but I just became obsessed with learning and learning about startups. So right out of college, I started a for-profit e-commerce company. There used to be a lot more of those back in 2012. And, and during that experience, Pete, I got to raise venture capital, got to learn how to get customers customers, how to build a brand, all these things. And that ended up not working. But what it did was it led me and my co-founder, that first startup, Mike Garrietta, we wanted to give back to two charities. And we wanted to build that into our business. And one of those charities, which is an amazing organization out of New York called Charity Water, who we're very close with. And it was another charity that was based in Haiti. And uh, we wanted to go see that charity based in Haiti in person. And so uh, we took a trip down to Haiti a couple years after the 2010 earthquake. I had no real understanding of the issue of global homelessness and families not being born in adequate housing. Did not know anything about that. But I went on this trip and on that trip is when I got to experience, I would argue, maybe aside from climate change, one of the largest and most expensive problems in humanity. And that's that, you know, well over a billion people do not have adequate housing. And I got to see it in person. I got to see, you know, kids and babies and moms living out of blue tarp tents with dirt floors. And I saw that. And I actually, when I saw it, I didn't think about starting a charity because I always just wanted to be you know, kind of lead tech startups. I try to go find other charities that I could get really excited about and I could support. And again, this was me as an early 20 something you know, kind of somebody that likes startups and entrepreneurship. And the more I looked, Pete, the more kind of frustrated I got, just felt like there was a very old school kind of status quo way of a nonprofit. And that didn't resonate with me. And I literally started making a list of all the things that got me frustrated. And then I thought could be and should be better. And that list ended up being the origin of why it made sense to actually start a new story and not just go join another company. And so it's named new story because we want to create a new story. And of course, the families that we get to partner with and their new story and their life trajectory, but also a new story and how we think about modernizing and refreshing social impact and bringing that into a whole new area. And so that was kind of the founding you know, principle and ideas. And it took a first startup that failed that I could learn from that. And then that startup led me to see this experience in person. And then from seeing that experience in person and trying to go find other basically brands in the sector, I saw so many inefficiencies and frustrations 
And that was the aha moment where I said, what if I could just from scratch, you know, don't have to deal with an old school board and all these, you know, older philosophies and traditions, like we could just start something brand new from scratch. And that was how, you know, a bunch of, we was three young co-founders, we were 23, 24. We had no experience in this very complex sector and industry. And that was how we launched. And, you know, we started by just, you know, wanting to do a few houses. I always say to dream big, but to start small. And now we're literally thinking, how do we house, you know, over a million people this decade, which is something I have a lot of conviction we can do, but it didn't start that way. It didn't start for how do we create a plan to house a million people from day one? It was how do we create a plan that is very different from the incumbents and how do we just go out and get traction and prove that? And we did. And then we got into White Combinator and then ended up meeting you right after that, Pete. And so starting a nonprofit is unusual. It's saying charity. You're like a you started a for-profit and you're sort of surrounded by technology, I guess. Was that always that sort of the kind of calling here? And it's just more unusual in this day and age, perhaps, to have a very technology-centric organization that is purely focused on being a nonprofit, or is or do you see that as just the only way to get there? I wouldn't want to say the only way. I think that it is the most interesting and gives us the best chance to really scale our impact. And, you know, part of our mission statement is to pioneer solutions and global homelessness. And what that means is we have to learn what are the issues and the inefficiencies. And then we have to, you know, create products and solutions that is a much better experience for those problems. And then it's hard to do that without, I think, using technology and using software and, you know, really understanding where the future is heading. Um, and then, you know, kind of our big dream, Pete, is we prove those out and then we let other people in the market for us because our end goal is many more people we can impact. And so the competition in our market, whether it's other nonprofits or affordable home builders, actually, you know, designing solutions that they can use as well. And we're kind of the first ones to go out there and try and learn and we'll fail some, but ultimately create better products and solutions that can set up this decade for the families that we get to work with. I mean, when we've been talking board meetings, yeah. you have to sort of, there's a bit of a flip switch between like competition, yeah. you know, how much you want to enable the competition versus sure. compete with them. And like, you absolutely want to enable them. You yeah. want to open source everything, like which That's is right. exactly the point, which is a little bit of a sort of mental shift, but it's like inspiring when you put that. And I think, like you say, it's, it's not necessarily the only way, but it's probably the most effective way to get there. And you yeah, talk right. about this. I've heard you speak a few times about this phrase that I love called crazy until it's not. And just like as backing early stage founders, mm -hmm. we love we love these mm -hmm. like impossible ideas that might just work. Is there a framework that you think about this mm -hmm. or kind of mantra? What does that mean internally at New Story Crazy until it's not? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, you know, one thing I have learned is uh, you have to be, I think you have to be selective with how many of the crazy until it's not ideas that you go after. Obviously, if you're going after too many, it's going to dilute it. If it's only just one and maybe too small. So we want to get conviction on what are the bets that we want to make and if they work, it has like truly a 100x, you know, exponential impact. And if it doesn't work as you're building a company, you know, we haven't done anything that would, if it didn't work, you know, completely sink us, it would be a, a big hit to us, but it would be one that we could, 
you know, it may require resizing the organization, like, but we would be able to move forward. And so, you know, too crazy till it's not bets. Um, the first one, which has gotten, you know, a lot of attention was, you know, be able to partner with a startup out of Boston, Texas called Icon and being the absolute first partners to create a 3D printed house in the United States. And then the dream was we wanted to help prove that out and then create the first 3D printed community of homes in the world. And uh, we were able to do that in 2020. And now we have a next goal, which I won't announce here. But in the beginning, when I was you know running around telling people that we wanted to allocate a lot of capital towards 3D printing houses, even though they haven't been proven yet. A lot of people said that was crazy. A lot of people said, you know, let the other people do that. Stick to what works, stick to what's normal. People are trying to give, you know, wise advice. And, you know, we wanted to listen, but we made a decision to try it anyway, because we had high conviction and then it worked. (laughs) And when it worked, then it's no longer crazy. It's, you know, everybody wants to partner with you. We had, you know, Apple TV do a documentary. You have all this coverage. We've had, you know, hundreds of millions of video views, but it was because we had the, I guess, the courage to take a calculated risk, despite many people telling us we shouldn't be the ones to do this. You're too inexperienced. Who are you to try this? You know, let the other guys try this. Like, what are you doing? And then we did it and then it worked. And so, that's one example. And then we have, you know, another one coming up here that's exciting with some Web3 stuff we could talk about that I also see could play out that way. Yeah, because I remember talking about the 3D printed home and it is a crazy idea, but I think the way that, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way that it sort of transpired, while the technology is really early, it's improving incredibly quickly and it is literally, you know, better, faster, cheaper. I was that's right amazed at kind of like the sort of better being the sort of tensile strength of these things is superior to bricks and like an earthquake risk zones it's sort of is better and then it's mm-hmm. faster what's the best case 24 hours to build a home that's right which is astounding and then you know cheaper right. or at least the same price as everything else which is astounding and i think you know as a lot of founders listening like you know what founders do and what uh, a lot of investors will do is you're forecasting out a future of what could be and should be right and so for us as an example of 3d printed homes this is a bet on the decade right and we know that in the beginning there's going to be problems there's going to be issues there's going to be learnings and efficiencies but we made this investment as an organization because we really believed that it, in the second half of the decade, it could really scale up. And I think that's what a lot of founders do, right? Because they have this insight on what could be and should be further out into the future that is going to you know, take some time to build and get traction and you know, change public opinion and, uh, you know, change, you know, who are actually going to leave great companies and come work for your startup, but you're the ones that are starting it off and are catalyzing it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's classic startup timing, right? You've got these sort of, you take a long-term view of these technology, technological shifts and economic shifts, and it doesn't necessarily make a big impact today, but it will, you know, you scale it up and it's like this, you know, the benefits are growing exponentially. We first met when you went through YC right back at like six years ago. I guess that must have been a pretty critical kind of, you know, forging of the DNA in the company and culture. That's right. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the best things about going through Y Combinator, which was extraordinary for us, was they didn't treat us any differently than anybody else there. Right. They didn't set us aside and say, hey, you guys have, you know, make your ambition, you know, half of the other ones because you have a social impact or decrease your standards, you know, or like 
No, it was the exact same thing. And that's how our co-founders, Matthew and Allie, that's what we believed. We think that if you're trying to work on such a massive, complex problem that we are, if anything, you should have higher standards. And I think, you know, the ability to just choose to have higher standards and to choose to, you know, put innovation in your culture, put calculated risk taking in your culture, um, to be obsessive about, you know, recruiting great talent, uh, you know, the list goes on. And those are choices that we got to make in the beginning. And that's what helped formed, you know, our DNA. It also helped form who are the types of you know donors or partners that wanted to get involved with us? Because as I was mentioning earlier, you know, when I was talking with you, Pete, or other people that were joining us in the very beginning, you know, I was saying all these same things. It was just so early, it hadn't happened yet, and it attracted a certain type of person that wanted to be part of a company or an organization like that. They gave you like a hundred homes in a hundred days. That was the challenge, right? <laughs> well, how, they, how did you feel when that was proposed? Well, yeah. So this kind of helped form one of the values that we have at New Story now. With the value is you know think big, break down, execute. And the backstory is, I'm sure some of the folks listening up have gone through Y Combinator. Maybe you want to fly. When we went through it, when you first First start, you know, you have about a three month, you know, period. They, they tell you pick one very ambitious metric that you need to hit at the end of this. And it has to be one metric. Can't be a lot of other ones. Just focus on one metric. And, you know, so go off for a day or two. And as founders, think about something that feels very ambitious, but like just maybe possible and attainable. And so we went away and we said, you know, in three months as a couple, you know, young 20 somethings that haven't done this before, if we could do 50 houses in just three months, that feels really ambitious, but maybe we could do it. And then uh, the first thing they said back to us was, great, double that. You're going to do 100 houses in less than 100 days, and that needs to be your goal. And you know what that forced us to do was to just change how we would think about going to market, how we'd have to do things on the ground. That's a mentality that anybody can take, right? And that's a choice to think that big and to give yourself, you know, those goals in that limited time period. And it worked. We did uh, about 115 houses in 100 days. Yeah, amazing. I remember I was one of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's terrific. But the last thing I'll say in that, Pete, is, yeah. you know, there's a very, 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 very small percentage of people out there that would encourage you to go after that big of a goal that early. Right. And so, you know, for people listening that want to become a founder one day, like you have to understand that there is only a very small percentage of people that are going to think that way and are going to push you that way. Usually what's going to happen is the gravitational pull is to just bring you back to what's normal what, you know, would be a little above average, what would be nice to have or nice to do. And, uh, and I think as founders, you just, you, you got to think bigger than that. Um, and you got to push through. And, you know, I'm an example of that. Like I am by no means anywhere close to like usually the smartest person in the room or the most accomplished person before I came into new story. Not at all. I think one thing that me and my co-founders did have is we just, had the audacity to set bigger goals. And what we realized was that I always say bold ideas attract bold people, right? They attract bold people that want to invest in you, that want to come join your company. Now, obviously you have to back that up as you go on, but that has been an advantage for us is to just to set bolder goals. You're listening to the NFX podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these insights. Follow us on social at NFX and visit NFX.com for more content. And now back to the show.
I mean, back to this sort of discussion about community, it's like it's the networks that you keep is so critical. I remember coming from the UK and, you know, being involved in internet startups there and then to Silicon Valley. And I thought, okay, this, we're doing pretty good. We're benchmarking this, that, and the yeah. other. It's pretty good for a UK company. And then you repot to Silicon Valley, like, whoa, you know, it's at least multiples or order of magnitude, sort of like, you know, different metrics there and that. And then you kind of like figure out why well, that's, you know, that seems really impossible. And then you learn and you kind of like think, and then you sort of put your head space, head in a different space and like, oh yeah, okay, I'm there. And I think that's just the sort of networks that you find yourself part of. And that, you know, they could be passive networks or it can be active networks, but it changes your kind of like- um, Absolutely. Your aspirations, your goals, which, you know, can turn a sort of, you know, a good business into a category defined right. business or nonprofit. That's right. That's what, you know, I just saw firsthand of, uh, you know, a couple startups that NFX has backed in Latin America, and I won't go into the specific names, but that was so clear how, you know, those founders taking on that mindset, from my opinion, has really brought them tremendous success and is really setting up the decade for them to create, you know, I mean, category defining companies. Of course, there's exceptional founders, but they, you know, you really have that mindset as well. You touched on culture and values, like, Perhaps you could talk a little bit about those values and culture. You know, I think a lot of companies focus on a mission-driven orientation, but you take it a level further. But at the same time, you might want to sort of become, you know, unlike most nonprofits, which, you know, I fortunately I've seen them, which kind of perhaps a little bit slow and inefficient and risk averse. Like, what do you instill in the culture values? So, I mean, you act like, and this is wonderful things when we first connected, you act like a hard charging, hyper ambitious tech startup with mm -hmm. metrics and goals and, and KPIs. Can you break down a little bit about how you went about the culture and any specific components that may be interesting? Yeah, I think the first thing was, and this may sound you know, cliche, but was, was really deciding, which is totally your choice when you're starting a company, like, are we going to take this seriously? Are we going to take culture and values seriously? And I remember Brian Chesky, you know, one of the founders of Airbnb, you know, came and spoke when we were going through White Combinator and he just, he talked so passionately about the culture and values. And for me, that was something I really, I was like, I'm going to take this guy at his word and I'm going to really believe this. And so, you know, I became, and my co-founders as well, pretty obsessed with how we wanted to instill our core beliefs and our core values. And for any type of founders, I think you're going to of course have different values for your organization. And I think a lot of times they do flow from who are the founders. And I don't think there's no right or wrong value or way to instill culture. I think the most important thing is that you really believe in it and you really invest into it. And then then you are unashamed in choosing the type of values that you really want to implement in the organization and see come to life. And so for us, there were two values that still we talk about the most, you know, almost six years later. One is what we called a team of founders, which essentially just an ownership mentality, a resourcefulness mentality, a learning mentality that when new things come about that we can't even, you know, forecast yet. But, you know, six years ago, I wasn't thinking about how are we going to use Web3 to do payments, you know, with the families that we get to work with, right? But it was a mentality of a team of founders mentality where we want to learn, we want to go out and try and we want to own experiments and own the failures of those. So that was one value, team of founders. And the second value was a humble pursuit of excellence. And to me, this is, I think, really what defines the organization. And that's just, um, it's kind of this unique blend of, uh, on one hand, you have the pursuit of excellence would be, I mean, just tenacity, determination, really high standards, a high bar, like 
really pushing people to be the best that they can be. And on the other hand, you have a humble posture. Uh, you also have compassion. You have kindness. And those two things together are quite rare. It comes from, you know, Jim Collins, uh, good to great level five leadership. Those two things are so rare. And I think when you get them together, that's what creates, I mean, for us, that's been the magic of our culture is bringing those two things together. What I think usually most cultures kind of lead with one of those, right? Maybe some could be known as, maybe this is some nonprofits as, yes, they're very compassionate people. They are kind and absolutely but do they have the other side, right? And then you may go to some other startups that are, you know, maybe over-indexed on the tenacity in the pursuit of excellence side, which I'm the first one to say is great, but they're missing some of the other things, the soul of the organization. And we really wanted to combine those together and create a humble pursuit of excellence as a value. And that's what we try to recruit for. That's what we try to be known as an organization. And we live that out every week by still six years later, every week we are shouting each other out for exercising those two values you know, in our Slack channel. And we also have every Friday, we've never missed a Friday of doing this since we started the organization. Every Friday we have a values call. There's no agenda other than team members going around the horn and shouting out another team member for how they exercise one of those values that so I would say, okay, Sarah, this is how you were a team of founder this week. This is how you displayed a humble pursuit of excellence. And I think for us, it's been amazing to have a weekly cadence of hearing stories of what happens during the week, but also how other team members are doing. So those are you know a few things that come to mind, Pete. And is there, obviously, most companies have a drive for revenue scale or profitability. Like, What's the North Star metric for you? So for us, it's ultimately number of people impacted. And that is the North Star metric, how many people that we're able to, to partner with and that they would have life-changing home and land ownership. So for us this decade, our metric that we want to get to is over a million people that would have new home and land ownership. That's about 225,000 families. And then after we hit that goal, um, we would like to maybe 10x or 100x that for the following decade. Yeah, that's terrific. It's still a drop in the ocean. So there's a big problem ahead, but that's, I mean, still a million people is just astounding. Yeah. Um, you know, we think it could be, you know, larger than that. But what we're really getting at is because we are working with literally one of the biggest problems in the world, we can't do it all ourselves. And so yeah. what we really want to do is, you know, create and prove kind of like the most efficient and effective way to partner with a million people for life-changing home ownership and land ownership, and then have that be a model that others can replicate. And so what we're trying to do is be best in the world at doing that for a million people, and then create kind of the playbook and the software and the toolkits that others around the world, other home builders and actors that want to get into the space can do. So let's talk a little bit, just like double click on the 3D printing stuff for a second. Just can you describe just like how the technology works? For a minute, I've seen it in person in a couple of places, but just like, yeah. I think it's sort of, it sounds wacky, but can you describe, like give a an audio sure. uh, example of like how it actually works? Yeah. So we're using proprietary cement mix that is going to be oozing out of the 3D printing machine. And so there's, you know, the homes that we print are anywhere between 500 to a thousand square feet and the machine will, you know, it's like a gantry style machine. And so the machine will set up on the ends of the house that we're about to print on the foundation. And then we will layer the house with the cement almost looks like a soft serve ice cream that is coming out of the nozzle. And that is creating layers 
that will ultimately layer up and go to the top of the house and you put a roof on. And so each layer is about an inch to an inch and a half thick. And a machine is just printing the layers that the CAD file is telling it to print. And so we can edit the CAD file, we can edit the designs, and then the machine is just doing what it's told to, to print the house. And there's hardware you know, innovation here, there's software innovation, but it's also the material science innovation because it's really about how quickly can that material cure from when it comes out of a nozzle, lays down a layer, and then you have to come back around and do the other layer until you've layered the whole house to the top. And that's what we're really excited about in the future with our incredible partner, Icon, is to increase that speed at how quickly the homes can be built. Yeah, they're quite beautiful in some ways because they're sort of they're much more organic mm-hmm. because everything is curved shaped. It's like the technology is kind of like we're cake decorating. Yeah, um, that's right. You're squeezing yeah. the stuff out. It's like oozing around. It's like or massive <laughs> toothpaste tube. Um, that's right. But they're just they're really organic, which makes it just a warmth as opposed to blocky which is astounding. And it's like, I think often you see innovation kind of enter markets at mm-hmm. the sort of high end right. or the low end of the market. And I think this is, you know, there's sort of the odd, a steep learning curve on this. You can see that scale here is potentially astounding. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so Pete, you saw the very first 3D printed community of homes in the world. And of course that came with a pretty big set of challenges and things to learn. But, you know, from our perspective, we did it, we proved it, we got an extraordinary amount of learnings, and that's going to set up the next couple of years for how we want to, to grow the partnership. So let's talk in Web3 and crypto stuff for a minute. Yes. So I guess in real estate financing, there's all these models, like, and you've seen this entry of Web3 and crypto, maybe just give us some context here. Like what's the sort of big picture and yeah. then what are some sort of tactical stuff you're seeing right now? Yeah, I think this is going to be another one of the uh, crazy until it's not ideas that a couple years from now, people will say it's no longer crazy. But I have so much excitement and conviction around this use case because it cuts out the traditional banking systems that the families that we partner with already don't use and don't trust because they're not designed to serve families that are, you know, below the poverty line, living without adequate housing. And so for us, why we're so excited about it is because it creates whole new opportunities for the families that we get to partner with. And so how that shows up right now that we're doing is the families that we work with, they are unbanked right? So we can't just send them a mortgage payment on their phone or their computer and they, you know, click their mortgage payment or put it on auto pay, right? To make their mortgage payments. That doesn't exist. So because of that, you have traditional systems that are set up where if a family could get anywhere close to a loan that would enable them to try to build their house, which you know doesn't really exist, the interest rates are going to be insanely high. And then how that money is transferred and collected over time is literally with cash and people doing it all in person and trying to track that for over 10 years. And imagine where is that stored? Where's the transparency? Families, you know, have to spend so much time going and walking and making these payments like it's a complete disaster and that's why a lot of the interest rates are so high and people can't you know make longer term loans which we would need for a mortgage right because as we know it takes a long time for a lot of people in the world to pay for a house that doesn't exist because of all of the human labor and old school systems and so what we're doing right now in El Zante El Salvador which is kind of the home of where the Bitcoin Beach project started is uh, we are using Lightning Network that you know pairs well with Bitcoin and families will be making digital mortgage payments from their phone for the first time. 
So they will, whether they're paid in Bitcoin or they get paid in cash, they'll be able to convert that cash into BTC on their phone. They could do that through Bitcoin ATMs that are going to be in the community and close by, or they could just get paid in BTC in El Salvador. And then what new story, we have a wallet set up with a great company called uh, Gallo. And families will literally be able to, in two seconds, pay monthly mortgage invoices from their phone. And that is all transparently as it can be on the blockchain. And we're able to do that all digitally. And that removes all of the human labor and the higher interest rates and the servicing costs of trying to collect the payments manually. And it gives families a very transparent credit worthiness that's digital and that they can have simply by making these payments from their phone and on the blockchain. So that's one example that we are yeah. extremely excited about because everybody has a phone. All the families that we work with have a phone. They just don't have a traditional banking system and credit worthiness system. And that's what we want to prove out. I mean, you sort of, you put it in context and I think it's the transaction costs associated with these micro mortgage payments and, and the administration costs of kind of managing them in any traditional format would just be, it feels so expensive and cumbersome. Yeah. So digital focus makes sense. Right. And you can't use traditional fintech right now either because a fintech, you know, kind of web to fintech is going to usually be relied on some type of traditional bank that you're also plugging into. And so with web three, you just basically surpass that and it just goes direct to the lightning network and some of the blockchain rails. I mean, El Salvador is, it was like in the sort of recent Bitcoin dip, I saw the tweet from the president who was like, who is kind of fuming that I think he missed the bottom by seven minutes or something like, and so they seem all in on this. And it, it reminds me a little bit of just the, you know, perhaps in Africa 10 yeah. years ago, where they were like behind on fixed line telephony compared to kind of Western countries, but then mobile telephony just leapfrogged a lot of their kind of infrastructure, I guess. And I think this, the banking financial infrastructure and certainly in, uh, you know, my understanding in El Salvador yeah. and other parts of the region is incredibly immature. And so, you know, this seemed like another leapfrog moment. Okay, let's figure out where this might be in 10 years time and put ourselves there, which, you know, it's ambitious. And I think they've maybe got nothing to lose by doing that aggressively. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we're very excited about it. We're doing an active pilot and, you know, hope to scale it up even more in 2022. And, you know, one of the last things I'll say, Pete, is, you know, whether it's this exact Web3 use case we just talked about or other things that we're doing, you know, I think now after doing this work for about six years, I think the biggest opportunity that we have in helping more families around the world move from inadequate housing to life-changing housing is is using innovation in a way that decreases cost and improves the financing system so that families can actually pay for the house and the land themselves. Because yeah. charity and government subsidy only goes so far. I think philanthropy is a really great way to prove models and to take a risk. But ultimately, if we want to really scale this out, systems and innovations have to be created so that such a massive underserved market can actually pay for the house and the land. And that's what we're working on. And that's why I've never been more excited about our mission. Oh, that's terrific. And just touching on NFTs quickly, is that what advice do you give other nonprofits that might approach you? I don't know if they should be necessarily jumping on it. I think that you have to be able to learn, understand what's going on, right? So I think, you know, our team, because it kind of goes back to our DNA of who we hire and who we recruit, we've been actively learning, you know, we've been, you know, reading, listening to podcasts, talking to advisors, and like really understanding what it's about. 
you know, and I don't think it's yeah. about just, hey, let's make one piece of art and then auction it off at the end of the year and call it an NFT, right? I think that misses a lot of the opportunities and the excitement around NFTs. So my advice would be just spend more time like really learning and understanding it. And if that's maybe not in your DNA, think about hiring somebody in 2022. They could be somebody younger. So maybe the budget is not as high. That is just going to really be excited to learn about the future. And then how do you create those real use cases for your organization? Because if you don't do it in a, I think in a genuine way where you really understand what's going on, I just, and maybe make it one, you know, nice quick hit, but it's not going to be a long-term thing. And if you can't hire that person, you know, also what we do at New Story is, you know, we surround ourselves with advisors or supporters where we could go and learn from them. And that's a choice. Like anybody could do that, right? Like the fact that, you know, I can go on Twitter and start DMing people that I think really understand what NFTs are, like that's a choice. Anybody could do that. And I don't think enough people in the social impact sector are thinking like that or doing that. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think a lot of these just jumping on the bandwagon is not going to be successful, but it's natural that you would do something in this area. For the next drop. So people listening, hopefully when this comes out, we'll have it out. Go ahead, Pete. Sorry. I would definitely be interested. So, and then Bitcoin based mortgages, like we talked about this sort of innovation, like in 3D housing, innovation kind of happens, you know, often at the top of it or the bottom of the market. Like any thoughts on if you think this might be something that would be more applicable to countries outside of El Salvador, potentially Mm -hmm. in the US. I don't know how much think you've done on it. Yeah. So I think, you know, El Salvador is going to be just an incredible place over the next really few years for innovators to come and to try different use cases, right? And that's what we're hoping to do is to really prove Bitcoin-based mortgages, really using the Lighting Network out next year. And then, you know, I believe this is an opinion, but it's, you know, kind of depending on where you think the future is going. I do believe that other countries, especially throughout Latin America and then eventually Africa, will adopt you know, a lot of these payment rails and how we can use Web3 to do everything better and faster. And so from that perspective, because we believe that it will expand outside of El Salvador, at least that's what we're betting on, we think it makes sense to invest next year and to learn and to, of course, make mistakes, but then ultimately create a product that other people around the world can use. To the US, I'm not as sure. I think it has probably the best practicality is in places where families are unbanked and they're out of the traditional financing system. That certainly does exist in the US, but that's what we're most excited about. Yeah, so interesting. Before we go, two quick questions. So one is like, you know, you're such an innovative company. What's big for New Story next year? And then second question, how can our listeners support what you're doing, your incredible team and mission, and how can they learn and more about what you're up to? Yeah. So the biggest thing for 2022 that I'm most excited about is uh, New Story kind of transitioning from our first few years of pretty much funding or having our model be purely philanthropic and kind of all charity for the families that we get to partner with. We're now taking all of those learnings and our technology and our data. And next year, we're moving into a model where families will basically be paying for their home and their land because we figured out how to make those payment terms over a longer period of time, to use technology to do it more effectively and efficiently. And what we've learned is that families, like they want to do that. That's a dignifying process. They want to do that. And so for kind of the per unit economics of the home and the land, families will be paying for it. Uh, New Stories and organizations still 
definitely requires philanthropy because we're using that to fund our team, fund innovation, R&D, and then also still fund some of the subsidies that we will have with the home and land costs. So that's what I'm most excited about for next year. We'll be doing that in Latin America using Bitcoin-based mortgages, but also um, just kind of more traditional mortgages that are not using crypto yet. And then if people want to get involved, I mean, you can contribute to, if you love Web3 stuff, you can contribute to our Bitcoin-based mortgage program. You can, if you're more excited about supporting the innovation and our team, there's a program that we have where donors just fund our team and our R&D and our innovation. It's a program that we have called the Builders Program. Or the third thing is that you can just go on our website and either buy an NFT that will represent a house or a family will get a house in real life, or you can just sponsor a home to end the year. The home is about 10,000 US dollars. Well, Brett, it's been like terrific to have you on the NFS podcast. It's like, you know, personally, it's been so rewarding to spend time with you down in El Salvador and in Mexico and then the, all the work that you've done. And then professionally, like it's been sort of intersection of a lot of stuff that NFX and I've been focused on from thinking about alternative transaction models to yeah. kind of think about alternative living and then this kind of tech enable construction and management really just quarter NFX thesis are in the area, but in quite a different market. So it's been professionally just yeah. super rewarding as well and fascinating. Thank you, Pete. I feel honored to be able to learn from you and founders listening. I couldn't give a higher recommendation for the partners at NFX. So thank you all for putting out the content that you do and being so passionate about helping founders create, you know, world changing companies. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks, and feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.